0: If you know this song, I want you guys to sing it with me. I may never march in the infantry, ride in the cavalry, shoot the artillery. I may never fly on the enemy, but I'm in the Lord's army. Yes, sir. I'm in the Lord's army. Yes, sir. I'm in the Lord's army. I may never march in the infantry, ride in the cavalry, shoot the artillery. I may never fly on the enemy, but I'm in the Lord's army. Good job. You know, several years back, in a major denomination, they, d- they decided that there were hymns. that were very, very militaristic. They were too militaristic for their tastes. And so they set about removing these hymns from the hymnal. The deleted hymns were Onward, Christian Soldier, the Battle Hymn of the Republic, and I'm pretty sure I'm in the Lord's Army wouldn't have made that cut either. But this decision created so much much of an uproar that these denominational leaders later relented and put the songs back in their hymnals. But in in researching for this sermon, I encountered several websites where priests and preachers still reject these hymns. You know, in, in the past couple weeks, Sean's been talking about a sermon series called, called Leap. Haven't taken a leap of faith. Today we're continuing that, ser- that series a little bit because it's all about faith. We're going to be talking about being in the Lord's army. You know, despite the hostility that some have towards a military terminology in a church setting, the New Testament is loaded with such language. You found in 2 Timothy 4.7, Paul declares, I have fought the good fight. In 2 Corinthians 6-7, he says he, he he has had stood up for Christ in truthful speech and in the power of God with the weapons of righteousness in his right hand and his left. In 2 Timothy 2, verses 3 and 4, he advises Timothy to endure hardship with us like a good soldier in Christ. No one serving as a soldier gets involved in civilian affairs. He wants to please his commanding officer. In Ephesians 6, chapter 6, verse 13, we're told to put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you'll be able to stand your ground. And after you've done everything, to stand. And then there's a passage out of Revelation where we have a very powerful picture of Jesus. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Revelation chapter 19. Verses 11 through 16, we read about what John describes, and it says this I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse, whose rider was called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe. Of dipped in blood, and in his and his name is the word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine li- linen, white and clean. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword, out of which to strike down the nations. He will roll them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has this name written: King of Kings. Lord of Lords you know the Bible unapologetically uses military words to describe God and his people and as Christians we're literally in the Lord's army you know in today's text we we're going to read a story that practically every child in Sunday school and at church camp has heard in fact there's an old hymn about it many of us grew up seeing this hymn as children Joshua fit the battle of Jericho, Jericho, Jericho. Joshua fit the battle of Jericho, and the walls came a-tumbling down. Now what you may not realize is that this same story about the fall of Jericho probably served as inspiration for the song we started out with the sermon with, I'm in the Lord's Army. I want you to turn with me to Joshua chapter 6, and let's read it together. Joshua chapter 6, starting with verse 1. Now Jericho was tightly shut up because of the Israelites. No one went out and no one came in. Then the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands, along with its king and its fighting men. March around the city once with all the armed men. Do this for six days. Have seven priests carry trumpets of ram's horns in front of the ark. On the seventh day, march around the city seven times with the priests blowing the trumpets. When you hear them sound a long blast on the trumpets, have all the people give a loud shout. Then the wall of the city will collapse and the people will go up, every man straight in. So Joshua's son of Nun called the priests and said to them, Take up the ark of the covenant of the Lord and have seven priests carry trumpets in front of it. And he ordered the people, Advance, march around the city with the armed guard going ahead of the ark of the Lord. When Joshua had spoken to the people, the seven priests carrying the seven trumpets before the Lord went forward. Blowing their trumpets, and the Ark of the Covenant followed them. The armed guard marched ahead of the priests who blew their trumpets, and the rear guard followed the Ark. All this time the trumpets were sounding, but Joshua had commanded the people, Do not give a war cry, do not raise your voices, do not say a word until the day I tell you to shout. Then shout. So he had the Ark of the Covenant carried around the city, circling it once. Then the people returned to camp and spent the night there. Joshua got up early the next morning and the priests took up the ark of the Lord. The seven priests carrying the seven trumpets went forward, marching before the ark of the Lord and blowing the trumpets. The armed men went ahead of them and the rear guard followed the ark of the Lord while the trumpets kept kept sounding. So on the second day, they marched around the city once and returned to their camp. They did this for six days. On the seventh day... They got up at daybreak and marched around the city seven times in the same manner, except that on, the, on that day they circled the city seven times. The seventh time around, when the priest sounded the trumpet blast, Joshua commanded the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. The city and all that is in it are to be devoted to the Lord. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall be spared, because she hid the spies that we sent. But keep away from the devoted things, so that you you will not bring about our own destruction by taking any of them. Otherwise, you will make the camp of Israel liable to destruction and bring trouble on it. All the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron are sacred to the Lord and must go into his treasury. When the trumpet, shouted, when the trumpet sounded, the people shouted. And at the tr- sound of the trumpet, when the people gave a loud shout, the wall collapsed and every man charged straight in. And they took the city. Now here's the setting. Israel, they've been in the desert for 40 years and have finally come to the promised land. And God instructed Joshua to have the ark go before the people as they crossed the river Jordan. At, as the feet of the priests hit, who were carrying the ark touched the waters of the Jordan, the water simply ceases to flow. And the people crossed the river on dry ground much as their ancestors did with the Red Sea some 40 years before. Now they are now camped in the shadow of the, of the city of Jericho, the walls of Jericho. And Joshua is facing the task of leading God's people and taking the promised land. But there's a problem. Israel has just come to take over the land of Canaan. And the people who live in the land of Canaan They have no intention of just handing this this city over, handing this this land over. The Canaanites, they're going to fight to keep what is theirs. There are giants in this land. There are cities that are strong and fortified. And perhaps the most fortified city of them all, in all of Canaan, is Jericho. So Joshua goes off by himself probably to pray and seek God's guidance about what to do. And, if, and as you look back a little bit in, in chapter 5, verse 13 of Joshua, it says, we're told that he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Now a little bit later, this, this stranger identifies himself as the commander of the Lord's army. He's standing there with a drawn sword, and he commands Joshua to take off his sandals because he is standing on holy ground. And there's something so unsettling about, about this encounter that Joshua falls flat on his face in reverence and says in, in Joshua chapter 5, the beginning of, of verse 14, what message, what message does my, ser- my Lord have for his servant? Well, what's the message? What did God want Joshua to know? Why would this heavenly being approach Joshua in this way? Well, the message is this. The time of waiting is over. We are going to war. God's army is prepared and we're armed and ready for battle. You are not going into this conflict alone. You know, one of the most encouraging passages in the New Testament says this. It's found in Romans chapter 8, verses 31 and 32. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for all... How would he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? That's the message that God is giving Joshua in here. I'm going into battle with you. You don't have to take this land all by yourself. My army is going to be right there with you. And as if to drive that point, that fact home a little bit, that the Lord's army is going to fight for Israel, God gives Joshua a battle plan that can only be accomplished With God's power, God tells Joshua to have his armed forces march around the city once each day for six days. On the seventh day, seven priests were to carry the carry ram's horns and lead the ark of the covenant around the city seven times. And the after, and when the ark had completed its seventh trip around the city, the police, the priests were to blow their horn a loud blast, and the people were to give a mighty shout, and the walls of the city would collapse and the city would be open to attack. Think about that for a little bit. Pretend you're one of the generals in Joshua's army, and he had just told you this plan that God, was gonna, that God had given them to take over Jericho. And I can kind of imagine, it would probably, it'd probably be something like this. If I was to talk to Joshua, being one of his deci- his generals, okay, Joshua, let's be sure I get this straight. You say for six days we're to walk around the city of Jericho carrying the Ark of the Covenant saying absolutely nothing. Seven priests are going to be in front of the the Ark of the Covenant. They're going to be blowing their trumpets, but we can say nothing. Then on the seventh day, when when we walk around the city, we're going to do it seven times, again silently. Then all of a sudden, when the trumpets blow a long blast, we're to start shouting. And all these double walls, these big... Huge, double walls are going to fall? Come on, Joshua. That doesn't make a whole lot of sense. You're nuts. The military strategy that, that God laid out for Joshua, it doesn't make sense. Nevertheless, Joshua believed God. He believed that God would perform a miracle and give victory over the great city of Jericho. That God would give victory if Joshua did one simple thing. He obeyed God. Now this victory over Jericho was to demonstrate one great truth for all of history. That faith in God is the most important force in the entire world. You know, a person conquers and is victorious over the enemies of life only if he believes and trusts in God. Victory is achieved through faith. The walls of Jericho came tumbling down, collapsed because the Israelites believed God entrusted his word. How can a person conquer and be victorious in life? How is victory over the enemy achieved? It's by faith. A faith that believes God's word and his instructions. See, the city of Jericho seemed impregnable, impossible to conquer. The gates of the city have been tightly shut so that no one can come in and that no one can come out. This was actually the very first fortified city that was encountered by the Israelites within this enemy territory. And if you know anything about the Israelites at this time, or if you look back a few books in the Bible, like I said before, they were a desert people. They were wandering about the desert for 40 years. They weren't equipped to attack a walled city. You know, not in the eyes of the world at least. In fact, it had been the fortified cities that had actually discouraged the first generation of Israelites from entering the promised land. Jericho was a fortified city with either double walls or walls that were about 20 feet thick and 25 feet high. Standing on top of these walls, these, the soldiers of Jericho can see miles and miles around them. Jericho was strategically placed as a fortress to guard against invading armies coming across the Jordan River into into the hill country of the Canaanites. This city was considered a mighty fortress. It was impenetrable. It was invincible. It was impossible to conquer. Jericho stood as a picture of power. The enormous strength of the enemy that God's people confronted as they sought to conquer the promised land of God. Now, back then, there were, there were at least five ways to conquer a walled city. One was by scaling the walls using the ladders or ramps. Two was by digging tunnels underneath the walls. You could also you know, use a battering ram to break down the gates or to break a hole in the wall. By laying siege to the wall until the, laying siege to the city until the people were starved into surrender. Or you can use some type of means of deception, such as like a truce or an ambush from the human perspective, this situation that Israel was in seemed very hopeless. They weren't skilled in modern warfare. They had never used ladders to scale the walls of the enemy nor battering rams to break down the, the gates. They'd never built ramps or moved these ramps up to the city walls under fire of arrows and other weapons. The conquest of the enemy just seemed impossible. But look back to Scripture. There's no indication whatsoever that the Israelites were gripped by doubt or fear. They had confidence. They trusted in God. They they trusted that God was reigning supreme in their hearts. They had complete confidence that God was going to give them victory over the enemy who was trying to keep them out of the promised land. It then says, if you look even further into into the Scripture says so that Joshua then, after Israel took Jericho, the city was to be burned to the ground. No spoils were to be taken from the city. The city and all that lay within it belonged solely to the Lord. Now, you may be thinking, you may you know look at this story and say, okay, that's a, that's a good story. But how do we know it's true? Well, you believe, you have faith. But if you want a little bit more, several... Uh, on Over the past several decades, archaeologists have actually investigated the ruins of Jericho. And they found some very, very interesting things. First is they discovered that the walls of Jericho were not caved in or torn down. Like you'd expect if someone assaulted the walls. Instead, they were literally collapsed. Almost as as if by natural forces. They speculated there's maybe an earthquake. We know a little bit better. Secondly, there was a thick layer of soot found, found at this site. It indicated that the city had been burned. Of course, we know that's precisely what God commanded the army of Israel to do to the city. And thirdly, the, the city had not been starved into submission the way that most cities were taken by the enemies because archaeologists have found bushels of grain buried beneath the ruins, indicating that there was still food there within the city when it fell. By God's command, Jericho was never to be rebuilt. There was a new Jericho that was was rebuilt. It was built nearby. But the old Jericho has lain in ruins ever since the days of Joshua. Can you guess why? You know, God wanted the city of old Jericho to be a lasting witness of his power and faithfulness to Israel. And not just a witness to the nation of Israel, but also to us. It says in Romans chapter 15, verse 4, everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through endurance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. See, God made the story of, of Jericho famous because he wanted it to be encouragement to all of us. At the ruins of Jericho, God is telling us if he had been there for Joshua as he was there for Joshua, he'll be there for us as well. If God is for us, who can be against us? It's a really comforting thought. God is for us. And that's what, Jer- that's what Joshua was hoping the heavenly stranger would tell him. If you remember back a little bit, when Joshua saw the, Lord, the commander of the Lord's army, the first thing that he said to him is, Are you for us or are you against us? Whose side are you on? And this heavenly being on the side of Israel, is this heavenly being on the side of Israel or on the side of its enemies? And in Joshua chapter 5:14 we have the answer. The, Lord, the commander of the Lord's army says, neither. But as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Neither? How can that be right? I mean, I thought God was supposed to be on our side. I mean, God commanded Joshua and his people to go in and take the land of Canaan. They were doing this by his express command. But here's the commander of the Lord's army saying he isn't on Israel's side. What's going on here? Let me tell you a story. Back during the Civil War, President Lincoln spoke with a man who expressed the hope that God was on the side of the north in the war. Lincoln replied, We know that the Lord is always on the side of right. But it is my constant anxiety and prayer that I and the nation should choose to be on the Lord's side. Here's the lesson. We are the army of the Lord. And as the army of the Lord, we must never presume that God is on our side. It doesn't work that way. If you're in the military... Do the privates get to tell the generals how to run things? No. In the military, the generals aren't on our side. We are on theirs. They set the agendas. They determine the course of the battle. they, They decide the very existence of every man and woman under their command. And in the same way, in God's army, we don't get to determine what God should do. Or how he should conduct his affairs. We don't get to tell God how the church should be run. Or even how our lives should be run. We're in God's army. It's his army, not ours. It's God's church, not ours. He is in charge. We aren't. He gets to set the agenda. We don't. Essentially, God doesn't have to be on our side. We have to be on His. A couple years ago, I knew an elder who, who, who told of nearly dying in a very terrible accident. He was in such a bad shape that the doctors and nurses had given up on him. They, they left him to die. But because of the prayers and of the faithful assistance of his family and his church, he literally came back from the dead. But because of this miraculous nature of his recovery, he became convinced that God had saved him from death so that he could run God's church. Sometimes he was very wise about it. He was very wise about what he would do, but other times he was pretty heavy-handed about it. Now, he was was a fairly decent man, but there are times they forgot that God wasn't always going to be on his side. And sometimes he forgot that God's agenda might not always be his. And he ended up doing more damage to the church than he did good things with there. And as Christians, we also have to remember, God doesn't have to be on our side. But we had better be on his. So I want to be in God's army. I want to be on God's side. How do I make sure that's where I end up? Well, let's review. First, you need to put the full trust in God's power. If God was there for Joshua, he's going to be there for you as well. One of the major reasons that armies fail in battle is because the soldiers panic. They lose their trust in their leaders in the face of conflict. And as Christians, we need to realize that there's going to be times in our life that things don't go according to plan. We're going to encounter tragedies. We're going to encounter losses. We're going to encounter heartache. But as Jesus says in John 16, verse 33, in this world, we're going to have trouble. But take heart. I have overcome the world. In those times, in those times of trouble, we need to look to the commander of, the, of our army and trust him to guide us when we don't know the way. If I'm going to be a good soldier for Christ, I've got to trust Him. Second, you have to remember who's in charge. God gets to call the shots. Not me, not you, not any group of men or women on earth. God must lead us if we're going to have victory. Third, we need to realize the importance of standing on holy ground. God tells Joshua in Joshua 5.15 take off your sandals for the place that you are standing is holy. Now if you're able I want you to do something for me. Take off your shoes. If you can, take them off. It wasn't enough for God To tell Joshua he was on holy ground. God wanted an object lesson. The ground he was standing on was was holy ground. It was too holy. Too important to be soiled by the dirt of life. Joshua was going to be allowed to view his relationship with God. God, Joshua wasn't going to be allowed to view his relationship with God as a casual thing. He's in the army of the Lord now. And the commander of the army was calling for total commitment. You are on holy ground here. Not because there's a church building. But because you are the church. As Jesus promised, wherever two or more are gathered in his name, he is there with us. Every time we gather as a group of believers, we're on holy ground. Our commander, Jesus Christ, is calling for total commitment. As Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, no one serving as a soldier gets involved in civilian affairs. He wants to please his commanding officer. Why the need for such commitment? Because an army is only as strong as its weakest link. You are the army of God. If the whole army was involved as you, could we win the battle? If the whole army, if everybody in the church gave as much time for God as you do, could we overcome the world? If the rest of the church gave financially to God as much as you do, could we afford to keep the church going? If the rest of the church witnessed to others as often as you do, could the church even survive? This is holy ground. This is serious business. Teddy Roosevelt once said, No man is worth his salt who is not ready at all times to risk his body, to risk his well-being, to risk his life in a great cause. Joshua once said, Choose for yourself this day whom you will serve, whether the, God, whether the gods of your fathers serve that they were on the other side of the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. It's found in Joshua twenty-four fifteen. Also in Luke nine twenty-three, Jesus says, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take, take up his cross daily and follow me. See, the mark of a good soldier is the willingness to give all for their cause. There was a youth minister in Chicago. He was convinced that his youth might become distracted on their upcoming missions trip to Florida's balmy beaches. So he fashioned a cross from two pieces of lumber. And just before they climbed into the bus, he showed it to the group. I want all of you to remember this whole purpose of our going is to glorify the name of the Lord, to lift up his cross, the message of the cross, the emphasis of the cross. The Christ of the cross, he announces. So we're going to take this cross wherever we go. The Teenagers looked at one another, a little unsure of his plan, but they agreed to do it. And they dragged the cross on the bus. It banged back and forth in the aisle all the way to Florida. It went with them into restaurants. It stayed overnight where they, were st- where they stayed overnight. It stood in the sand while they ministered on the beach. At first, lugging this cross around embarrassed the kids. But later, it became a point of identification. The cross was a constant, silent reminder of who they were and why they had come. They eventually regarded carrying the cross as a a really big honor and privilege. The night before they went home, the youth leader handed out two nails to each of the kids. He told them that if they wanted to commit themselves to what the cross stood for, they could hammer one of the nails in and keep the other one as a reminder. One by one, the teens nailed their their nail into the cross. About 15 15 years passed. One of those kids, now a stockbroker, called the youth leader. He told them enemy he still keeps this nail with him in his, dress, in his desk drawer. Whenever he, he loses sense of focus, he looks at the nail and remembers the cross on that beach in Florida. It reminds him of what is at the core of his life, his commitment to Christ. See, the enemies that, conf- that confront us are innumerable. They can defeat us and th- they can destroy us. But there is hope. The wonderful hope of God's glorious promise. There is victory through His Son, Jesus Christ. There is victory over the enemies of life. Faith in Christ, believing and trusting Christ, clinging to Christ and following after Christ, doing exactly what Christ tells us, this is the life that will bring victory. Victory is achieved through the power of Christ and only through His power. Victory is ours by faith in the power of the Lord.